0: Well folks, uh, blessed to be here. Uh, This morning we'll be speaking uh, specifically about Afghanistan, and I'll get into that in a few minutes here. Uh, I, it's been literally almost three years. I think December will be three years since the last time I was here. And I know that there's a lot of new people here, so we'll try to give a little bit of an understanding to those who are not familiar with the ministry. But uh, we have been involved in the longest-running civil war in Africa, the war in southern Sudan. And in the last 65 years of the nation, we've had over 40 years of declared war. But there's really no time that we have not been fighting in the last 65 years. Uh, and we're fighting on multiple fronts right now. Not the last two summers, but the one before that, uh, Southern Sudan was upgraded to the third most dangerous nation in the world to live in. Uh, We used to be fighting one army, the Radical Islamic Army of the North. We're now fighting five different armies, and there's 148 different rebel groups operating in the Southern Sudan. Uh, All of my chaplains are armed. All of us go into battle. And I know that seems a little strange to people right now, folks, but uh, one of the things that I share with people is when we preach the gospel, uh, if we're preaching the gospel in the pulpit and someone comes and it shoots us. Our guys are willing to die as martyrs for Jesus Christ." But when they come to kill women and children, and burn them alive, rape them, sell them into sexual slavery, that's a different story. Then we go into combat and we defend those that do not have the ability to defend themselves. In sharing with you this morning, uh, it was an interesting situation because we were actually involved in four different wars around the world. Uh, We've been involved in the war in Sudan. We have been involved in the war in Burma. In October alone, our ministry sent about $100,000 just to feed uh, the Christians that are fleeing there. And I, d- I wish I had time to go into that today, folks, but I don't. Uh, And then uh, we have a war in Nigeria right now with the Islamic people killing the Christians there. Uh, But something that we did not plan to get involved in was Afghanistan. Uh, We have uh, had uh, missionaries in the underground in Afghanistan for many years. We have a division of our ministry, we call it Ghost Operations. We're actually operating in nine of the ten most dangerous nations in the world right now, and we have 400 missionaries in the underground there. Uh, The war in Burma was going on quite radically at the time, and uh, Christians are fleeing, women are being raped, they're being killed, uh, children are being killed, and so we had our hands full. Uh, But when Afghanistan collapsed overnight, uh, I think the whole world was unprepared for it. And I got a call from our Dutch office. We have a Dutch office that works with us, a, a partner in ministry, people that I've known for many years, very godly people. And they said, Wes, we have 22 missionaries in the underground, which we were supporting all 22 of those missionaries paying their full salaries. They said, uh, they hit with their extended families or maybe over 200 people there, and they're all expecting to die. They're all expecting to be killed, uh, for their faith there. Uh, one of the missionary families that had gone into hiding just before, uh, the Taliban took over were discipling three other, uh, Muslim families that had come to faith in Christ. Uh, the fa- Taliban found those three families and killed, Killed mother, fathers, children, even babies. They executed all of them, and uh, so at that point I, we went into wartime planning. And I went to the office, down to my office, and I said, "Guys, I said uh, we we've got a major crisis on our hand. We have to go into wartime planning." Now, guys, I've been involved in the war in Sudan for many, many years, and you know it's interesting how God prepares you for certain things. Uh, two of my brothers are here with me, both former Marines, uh, both former Special Forces that were with me in Afghanistan. Uh, but you know uh, about a year ago, uh, we had a group of criminals in our, our village. And you know, our village is quite large with the extended area, maybe more than 100,000 people in the surrounding area. But they were going around at night. And they were capturing young women, and they were raping them, and then they were murdering them to, so that the rapes would not be known. And they were throwing their bodies into the latrines. And uh, this went on for a while. The police seemed completely inept to deal with this. And so finally, I went to the police, and I said, listen, guys, why aren't you doing your jobs? Well, first of all, they weren't getting paid. I said, listen, I'm going to pay your salaries, but now you guys work for me. And they said, Wes, if you just feed us, we'll work for you. Well, the first night, we set up a search-and-destroy team. We went out. We actually captured over 40 of the guys that were doing this. And uh, basically, in South Sudan, the police know how to do interrogation. And they took them into a room and said, "Uh, give us the names of your leaders. They said, we're not going to do it. They said, if you ever want to walk out of this room alive again, give us the name of your leaders. Well, they gave up all the names of the leaders. We captured them all. It's completely come to a stop in our village. No more murders happened in the last six months. (laughs) But I believe that God uniquely trains men for the ministries that he's called them to, guys. You know, I, I knew from the time that I was six years old that I would be a soldier. And uh, I think that one of the things that a lot of people do not understand, especially when men go into special forces, whether you're Navy SEALs, Marine Corps Raiders, Army Rangers, 101st, 181st, 82nd Airborne, whatever. God has uniquely designed these men, uh, innately to protect other people. He's put it in their DNA. And a lot of people don't understand that, but God has prepared them for this type of work. Well, when this all went down, one of the things that happened is, uh, uh, we had, I have a good friend named Jared. Jared was the lead sniper in SEAL Team 3. Uh, Jared had come over to my ministry about, really, just early last year. He had found out about us and, uh, he came over to see the work over there, and he said, you know, what? when I read about your work, I thought, is this really real? And then I came over and saw all the ministry that you guys were doing, and he said, brother, this is the real deal. And we became uh, really good friends. Uh, I think he had killed almost 253 Taliban soldiers during his time with the SEAL teams in Afghanistan. And one of the things that Jared explained to our guys, because I actually brought him over there to teach about the difference between having to fight and kill in combat and the difference between murder. And he explained to the guys, he said, you know, there was a village that the Taliban came in, they were hanging the children, really taking 10 and 11-year-old boys and hanging them, and they were raping all the women in the village. And we went in there, the SIL team, and they took them all out. And it was really a great testimony for the people. So I called up Jared. I said, Jared, I literally have a major crisis on my hand. I said, I have 22 missionaries in the underground with their families, we may have well over 200 people that need to be extracted out of Afghanistan. I said, can we put together a team and extract these people out of there? And Jared says, absolutely, brother. So we went into our wartime planning. Guys, well, about a little over a month and a half ago, maybe a month and three weeks now, I don't remember exactly. Uh, I went over with five SEALs and three Marines, all of them former special forces, all of them sniper level trained, uh, crack shots with the military. Uh, the first team flew in at 14,000 feet. Uh, we took a chopper in, we landed and dropped off the first team. I went in with the second team and it uh, was two Marines and two SEALs. Uh, once we hit the ground, we were supposed to climb between four and seven thousand feet. Uh, I, the team that I was with, we sent one SEAL with one guide and one interpreter, one direction. Another seal with one team and one guide, the dr- another direction. And then me and the other Marine brother, we t- went up together. And I actually think we got the worst of it. We were supposed to climb to about seven thousand feet, uh, but it, it ended up being somewhere around eleven eleven thousand five hundred feet that we had to climb to. And these mounds are very precarious. You know, I mean, literally one slip, you go off a thousand feet, and you don't recover from that there. And uh, but everybody knew they had a the job to do, so we realized the danger was there. Just get your mind into it and get going. I remember at one point uh, it was— I was going up the mountain, I I heard uh, someone sliding off the top of the mountain, you heard the gravel, and I literally just, I didn't have time to think, I just reached back, and I grabbed the guy, and it was my interpreter, and he was going off the side of the mountain, and fortunately that just enough sustained him uh, to bring him in there. but God began to do many work miracles. As we got to the top of the mountains, now all of these guys had had multiple tours in Afghanistan, so they knew the other side of the border. We were looking for what we call rat lines. For those of you who are not familiar with that term, they're escape routes. And uh, we are looking for ways to get people out through the mountains. And, and it's one of a dozen different ways that we're getting people out of Afghanistan. Folks, I won't go into a lot of detail. We're still in major operations right now, and I can't explain things because it's going to put people's lives in jeopardy. We got to the top of the mountains. We were able to launch drones and uh, to spy out the land. But then God began to do many, many miracles. And, guys, one of the things that really amazed us is as we, is we were out there, uh, we got a call from YWAM. <clears throat> Uh, Their country director called us and said, hey, listen, we are the country director of YWAM, who is in Afghanistan, is in a certain city. He goes, the Taliban is literally going door to door hunting him right now. They're within a couple of hours of finding him. Is there anything that you guys can do? So I turned to Brent and Luke, and I said, guys, can you get on this immediately? And they got on it, and they handled it superbly. We got a hold of our assets on the ground that were in Afghanistan Within an hour, we were able to pick up the kid, get him out of there. An hour later, the Taliban showed up at the door. Had we not got him, they'd actually written a letter before it fell and said, we are going to slaughter you. you there's no mercy because you are teaching this, what they call false religion uh, in Afghanistan. But it would be many more miracles than that. Uh, We got a call from Heather Mercer. Many of you might remember Heather Mercer. She was uh, captured and put in prison by the Taliban, eventually by the pressure of the U.S. government. She was released. And we got a call from her, and I don't remember exactly how many people, I think it was 26 people that she had in Afghanistan, and said, can you guys help us? Well, we got our assets in there. We got the 26 people out of Afghanistan, too. But the one that I think that surprised me the most was uh, Shannon Spann. For those of you who do not recognize that name, Mike Spann was the first American and first CIA officer officer that was killed in Afghanistan in 2001. And uh, uh, Mike had been a Marine Corps officer, Anglico, which is a special forces unit, and uh, he was recruited by the CIA. Shannon was also rec- recruited uh, by the CIA. They met at the farm, which is their training base, fell in love and had three children. They are very strong believers. And uh, Shannon said that when Afghanistan began to collapse, she was working with all of her agency people, and they were getting a ton of people out of Afghanistan. And uh, she said, but as soon as that last flight took off, it just came to a complete stop. And so then she called, uh, she said she was praying one night, and the Lord said, Shannon, you've, you've used the world to get people out. Why are you not using my people? And she goes, well, Lord, I don't know who your people are. And uh, somehow she called some guy, and guys, I do not know who this gentleman is. I, I know that his name was Bob. <clears throat> And, uh, apparently he's very influential in the Christian world. And, uh, and, and, Bob recommended her to call our organization. Uh, she got a hold of Brent. Brent works with my ministry. Brent was a second force recon. They're the lead of the Marine Corps Special Forces. And, uh, Brent grew up in Papua New Guinea. Uh, he was a missionary kid with, uh, New Tribes. And, uh, he's a great asset to our work there. And, uh, Shannon asked him if, uh, if he could get help to us. And, And Brent said, let me talk to Wes, and I'll get back with you. And during this time there, folks, uh, a lot of things were beginning to happen and unfold. I mean... Things were literally changing day by day, hour by hour. And every day when you get up and you decide that you have to rescue people, you're saying, what is the best, worst option that we have today? You know, it was never, there was a great option of how to get people out of there, but you're just praying through it and saying, Lord, just give us wisdom of what to do here. Uh, during this time, Shannon uh, began to read about our organization, and she called this guy up and she said, wait a minute, who is Wes Bentley? Who is Brent? Who is Far-reaching Ministries? And I don't know who he is, but he said, Shannon... Uh, He goes, uh, if my family were captured in Afghanistan... The two people that I would want to go and get them is Wes and Brent and established a relationship for us. Uh, Shannon flew out to California. She met with us, and she's become a very integral part of helping us to get people out of Afghanistan. So far, I believe that we have gotten 154 people out to safety. We have over 900 that are in transition right now. And uh, if everything goes well in the next, you know, 10 days possibly, folks, we may have somewhere over 1,100 people that we'll have extracted and got to safe locations around the world. Uh, But the one thing that affected me the most, believe it or not, and guys, you know, uh, as men of God, we knew that we were called to rescue believers. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 11, in verse 10, uh, Proverbs chapter 24, in verse 10, it says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those who are being led away to death. Hold back those who are staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? And one of the things as believers is that we have a responsibility. The Bible says that, you know, it says, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. And we have to ask, does our service to Christ ever cost us anything? Uh, one of the things that I, th- I found interesting, because that climb up the mountain was a very... Very difficult climb. I, I think that Brent told me that uh, uh, the first day we went 12 miles and uh, we and uh, and uh, we got up to about uh, 9,000 uh, feet, and then the next two days we finished the rest of the or the next day we finished the rest of the climb. Uh, after about 7,500 feet, you know, uh, you can really tell the thinning of the oxygen up there, and it becomes much more difficult to climb. But I remember that when I was up there, and this is something that I want to encourage you guys about. When you serve Christ, there's a real assurance in your life about where you're going and what is on the other side of eternity. And one of the things that I was sharing with the guy, there's just something excellent about knowing that you might meet the Messiah and you might meet him in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's real joy in that. I remember that I was up around 10,000 feet. I thought, you know, Lord, if this is my time... I'm okay with it. This is a good time to go. But the Lord really did watch over us and he really did provide for us. But one of the things that really affected me was not so much the Christians. And guys, we were very aware of there are a lot of Muslims out there that don't know Christ. And maybe they never will want to know Christ. But one of the things that the Bible tells us, it's the love of Christ that compels people under repentance. I think about my own personal life. Uh, I was not the best of kids when I was a young man. I remember I used to have this young kid that used to come and share Christ with me when I was in high school. His name was Ronnie Jensen. I remember he'd come over to my house and he'd share Christ with me and I would go and get my pellet rifle and I would walk him to the door and I would push him out the door and say, Ronnie, start running. And as he would run, I would shoot him, you know. And uh, he was a skinny little kid, he would flail. And I just thought that was absolutely hilarious, you know. I, 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 I didn't have much of a moral compass back then. <clears throat> But I remember that one day as a kid I was getting on the bus and, uh, and uh, I was mocking Ronnie about his Christian faith. And I go, Ronnie, who do you pray for? And he goes, you know, Wes, I pray for a lot of people. He goes, but I pray for you the most because I know that God has a calling on your life. And guys, at the time I laughed and pretended that I thought he was a knucklehead. But I remember it was like the Holy Spirit just sabered me at that point. And it would still be a number of years before I would come to know Jesus Christ. But I remember that the man who led me to Christ looked like Ronnie Jitson, except that he was about 15 years older than him. And I remember that, I, I don't know where this kid is in the world. I, he, he knows nothing about my conversion to Jesus Christ. I lost all contact with him. But he doesn't know that the rewards that he has in heaven. Uh, the director of YYM asked us to meet with this Muslim family. And guys, this is a very difficult story. We're going to show you Some photos here in a moment here. Uh, There was a mother with her mother. Both of their husbands were killed by the Taliban. The younger mother, her husband's brother, was a Taliban uh, officer. He was actually in prison. He was a very evil man. He was known to be very cruel. So the Taliban paid to get him out of prison, and they made him one of them, and he became an absolute murderer. He brutally kills his own brother. And, guys, I've seen a tremendous amount of death in my life. I've seen a lot of dead bodies. Uh, I have to say this is probably one of the worst and most gruesome killings I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Then he raped his own brother's four-year-old daughter, uh, and he raped his brother's wife. And there was a six-year-old daughter that witnessed this during the time. When we meet this family, we met at a lunch place what the YWAM director uh, suggested. Their clothing looked like they had not changed in weeks. Uh, Probably they left with what they had and had nothing else. And the mother begins to explain to me what's happening there. And she says, you know, he's called me on the phone, and he's told me, if you do not return with the children, I will murder all 28 members of your family. And he'll do it too, folks. And when she said that, all of a sudden the little girl just began to sob. She had witnessed what happened to her four-year-old sister. Guys, can we bring up that first photo there if we can? This is the little girl. She begins to hear what her mother's talking about during the conversation. And the one to the left was the four-year-old. And as you can see, let's go one more. And... We'll go to the other ones in just a second here, folks. But as we're talking to this, you know, I I shared with the mother, I said, you know, Jesus said to me, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I said, you cannot worry about the adults of your family. These children are your first priority. And she goes, Wes, we're not allowed to work in this country. We're not allowed to have a job. We're not allowed to own property. She goes, we don't even know what to do. I said, listen, we'll pay your rent. Uh, we'll take care of you until we can extract you from this com- country. And we're in the process of working on it at the same time. But then I said, Now, that being said, I will send a team in there. We will extract the 28 members of your family. And that operation is underway right now as we talk about this, folks. It's going on as we talk. It's, there's a lot of ongoing operations, which I can't give you a lot of details at this point. When we had finished the mill, and guys, you've got to realize, these people have not had a good meal in months. The little girl came up, she put her arms around my waist, and she just started to sob. Now, I didn't invite her over. She just came over, put her arms around my waist, and started to sob. And I leaned over, and I kissed her on the top of the head. I said, honey, don't worry. I won't let anything happen to your mother. We're going to take care of you. At that point, that little girl would not let go of my hand the rest of the time I was there. Luke had actually said to me, he goes, you know, what, brother, he goes, you're probably, other than her father, the first man that she's ever felt safe with. And let's go to the next photo, and then let's go to the next one. Now, at this point, when we got done, we took them to a place to buy new clothing for them. Uh, you know how it is, kids. You need, you need play clothes. You need school clothes. You need winter clothes. It's very cold in the country that they're at, a lot of snow there. Uh, kids need underwear, shoes, socks, winter boots and stuff. And uh, the entire time we were there, the only time she'd ever let go of my hand was when she tried something on, then she'd grab my hand again. And then at one point, Luke and Brent took them up to uh, buy ice cream for the kids And let's go to the next photo, to the next one. And that's the first time I saw joy in her face at that point. You know, one of the interesting things about this during this time is I really felt like the Lord told me she's to be your daughter. Now, that doesn't mean that she'll ever live at my house or be under my care, but I have a responsibility to take care of her for the rest of her life. And guys, one of the things as believers is we're supposed to have a compassion for those who are suffering. We're actually supposed to have an empathy and a love for those that are perishing in darkness. A lot of people really do not understand that. I remember many years ago when I was in the Sudan, uh, and this was even before we started Far-Reaching Ministries. Originally, uh, my original job, I worked for another mission organization, and because of my military background, they hired me to be, uh, uh, I guess, basically an advanced party. So we're in a very heavy war zone. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of killing. And they would fly me and another Sudanese brother by the name of Michael. And Michael at the time was one of my closest friends. They'd drop us into the bush. We'd recon in the area. We'd find out where the enemy was, how many of them there was, what their troop strength was, and what the danger element to our people was. When we knew it was safe, I would radio out and tell them to bring in the main body of the team. And... Uh, and so I was over there, guys, and I came down with a case of malaria. Uh, I probably had malaria between 35 and 40 times now. But it was one of those times, and, you know, I, I was pretty sick. And one, one of the things that I always tell people is obedience is the safety net for the believer. The very act of obedience moves the hand of God in a very powerful way to protect you. And if you just will learn to trust the Lord, He'll, he'll work with you in a very, very amazing ways over there. Well, I flew back to uh, to America. I'd been in the bush for a long time. And, you know, guys, I really realized that God really does speak to people, and they can learn to hear the voice of God. I remember one night I was with a tribe. And, you know, sometimes when they bring you dinner, it's cooked, and uh, sometimes it's not, you know. And uh, one night they brought us a basket of live bugs for dinner. And I know that God speaks to people because I had five Calvary Chapel pastors with me, and they all heard the same thing. They said, you know, God just told us we're uh, supposed to pray and fast this evening, you know. And uh, so, (laughs) you know, very godly men. They were all able to hear the same voice. Unfortunately, I didn't hear that voice, you know. And uh, I prayed about it. I said, Lord, uh, do you want me to eat these bugs, or should I pray and fast too? And the Lord goes, no, I want you to eat the bugs. Hey guys, they call them flying ants, and you kind of—they kind of look—they got like the wings of a dragonfly. So you pick them up, you pluck the wings off, you put them in your mouth, and they kind of walk around a little bit, you know. And uh, you bite down on them, and uh, kind of crunchy on the outside and chewy on the inside, and they t- don't taste anything like chicken whatsoever, you know. And uh, got back to America, and I was—you know—I'd had a pretty severe case of malaria, uh, and I've had some very severe cases before. I had one, and guys, I cannot give you any understanding of how this happened. My staff told me they took my temperature twice. Uh, I was unconscious at the time. They said it was 111 degrees. Now you're not supposed to be able to survive that. I can't account for it. I don't remember it. You know, that's all I can tell you that was done. But I got back to America and I was exhausted. I'd been in the bush for a long time. And, uh, you know, when you're in the bush, things are very difficult. You know, like when you wash your clothes, the water isn't like this crystal clear, you know, sparkling water. It's more of that kind of Louisiana bayou water. So you wash your clothes, you hang them up to dry, and then once you take them off, you can put them up against a tree, and they don't fall down. They don't break down. They're just stiff, you know. You, have to act, I, you don't know if you actually accomplished anything when you did it. And I uh, got home to America, and I told my director, I said, listen, guys, I don't want to go back to Sudan Uh, For at least a month or two, I said, I'm tired. I've been over there. It's hot. You know, I'm just completely worn out. The very next day, I got a call from my director. He said, Wes, can you come down for a meeting? And I said, Yeah. Uh, So I drove down there. I thought he wanted to talk about a briefing of what was going on over there. And he goes, We need you to go back to the Sudan. I go, Why do you need me to go back to the Sudan? He goes, The enemy launched a massive attack. They've hit major villages up north. We have over 5,000 people that have fled. The food has disappeared. We're losing 9 to 12 people a day or dying of starvation. And I go, when do you want me to go back to Sudan? He goes, today. I go, guys, I can't do it today. I, I need at least a day to, to pray about this and think about this. And guys, I went home that evening, and uh, the next morning I prayed, and I got up and I walked to my kitchen, and I made a cup of coffee. And I started to pray, and I, said, I was praying this prayer, and I said, Lord, I go, do you want me to go to your hungry and oppressed people? I said, you know how hot it is this time of year, and you know how t- tired I am. You know, guys, sometimes it gets to 125 degrees, and, you know, it can get up to 85%, 90% humidity. It's just absolutely brutal over there. You literally sweat 24 hours a day. I'm standing in my kitchen, and I open my Bible. And this is not something I do regularly. All of a sudden, my eyes fall to this verse in Isaiah 50, uh, 58. In verse 10, it says, And if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed... Then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noon day. The Lord will guide you always, and he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. Now, the very thing that I prayed, God, do you want me to go to your hungry and oppressed people? At that very second, there was a young girl that used to come to my office years ago. I think she was probably 16 at the time. Her name was Amanda Sass. She's a very sweet Christian woman. I still see her from time to time, but she'd always come and talk about missions with me. All of a sudden, I hear an envelope slide under my front door. And I just kind of heard this swishing noise, and I thought, what was that? So I look around, there's an envelope, and I pick it up and I pull it out, and there's a Bible bookmark in there, and it's got the exact two verses on there that I just read. And then Amanda assassin put that under my door for me. Of course, I got my house in order, and I headed back over to the Sudan. One of the things that I want to share with you folks is that as believers... Um, sometimes we're not really aware of what the suffering is in the world. In America, we're starting to face persecution. It's coming. But many people do not realize that there have been more Christians killed in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries. Persecution is coming. The genocides of the world went right from somewhere between 150 and 200 million people that have been killed. And many of them have been killed for their faith. And as believers... God has called us to care for those. We're not supposed to just stand by and do nothing. We're supposed to respond to these crises here. I remember the first night of the crisis. Uh, uh, when I found out about it, uh, I flew to Uganda, or to Uganda, and then I went on to the South Sudan. And the commanding general of the South Sudan Army had led him to Christ uh, 23 years ago. He's one of my closest friends. And I called up the general, and I said, General, I, I need to meet with the president. I need to get... Uh, a paper that says that we can bring people from Afghanistan to the southern Sudan as a last option. You know, folks, we don't want to take them there because there's no way for them to make a living. There's no way for them to get a job. There's no jobs in southern Sudan. And literally within an hour and a half, I had a letter signed by the president of the country. Now, I go back to Kampala. I'm getting ready by fly back to America. And I got a call from Jared. He says the first part of this operation is going to be $352,000. And Guys, we have the money. We could do it. You know, after twenty-three years of ministry, you have some savings over those years. In times of crisis, but of course, you don't want to spend everything you have if it's not the Lord. And I was praying that night. I was up about three thirty in the morning. It wasn't because I was being spiritual, but I was literally getting a call every fifteen minutes. So there was no use in sleeping at this point. And I remember that during that night, I, I just felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, "I'm going to give you one piece of the puzzle at a time, and then you're going to have to trust me for the next piece." Very next morning, we have asked no one for money, not told anybody what we were doing. A gentleman calls me up and says, Brother, I've heard about what you're doing, and I'm sending you a check for $400,000 today. In the last three months since we started this operation, our support has doubled. I don't know how. I don't have an explanation for it. Guys, it's just been an absolute work of the Holy Spirit, We've already probably spent close to $1.5 million. And uh, yesterday, I green-lighted it with my guys that we may spend another 2 to $4 million. We believe the entire operation will cost us over $10 million to reach and take care of these people there. Uh, but again, we're trusting the Lord as we go through it. You know, it's interesting because over the years, I've heard for years, guys, and I, I find it quite comical. But people I, I come up to me all the time and say, Wes, well, just just admit it, you're you're part of the CIA. And I go, brother, I said, uh, first of all, no, I'm not. But if I was a part of the CIA, do you think me, you saying, just admit it, would break me? I mean, do, do you think that's actually going to happen there? Uh, I've even had some of my staff members that wonder about me. Now, guys, to give the CIA the credit would be an absolute mistake. It's been absolutely the hand of God. When we went over there, we thought if we got five or ten out on the first operation, it would be a success. Many of you have probably seen the movie Schindler's List. And in Schindler's List, at the end, when Oscar Schindler has rescued a thousand Jews, they give him a ring. And on the ring it says, He who saves one life saves the whole world. And it's a Jewish saying, folks, and it has several different meanings. One... If one person survives, another generation can be lifted up. Two, the Jewish people consider life the most precious gift. But to the person who is losing their life, it was their whole world. And this is what a lot of people don't understand. When a person loses his life, his world ends at that point there. Edmund Burke said, All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I believe that, more appropriately it would be said, all that is necessary for an evil to triumph is for God's people to do nothing. And as God's people, we're called to live these exceptional lives. One of the things I teach my guys in Africa, I tell them, when you know what the right thing to do, do it immediately. Because if you do not, you will compromise in your relationship with the Lord. I want to encourage you as believers, this needs to be a time that the church goes into prayer. We need to understand that there's a world out there that is dying without Jesus Christ. And guys, the Bible says it's the love of God that compels people to repentance. We're actually out there to reflect Christ's love. The Muslim family, the way that we met them is they said, we came to a church because everything that we've seen in Islam is so evil, so cruel. There's no love, there's no compassion. But with Christians, we feel that there is love. And they're searching For Jesus Christ and the the Bible says how will they know unless someone goes and how will they know unless we tell them but our job as believers is to go out there and spread the great news of the great hope of the gospel you know guys it was interesting because on the second team that we went in there uh, the guys were within about 50 yards of the Taliban at sometimes you know and of course all these guys are trained snipers and uh, Jared told me, he goes, that's the closest I've ever been to the Taliban and not smoked them, you know. And, uh, but, you know, guys, we were not there to be seen. We were there to be unseen. We're not there to make a name for us. One of the things that I shared with Shannon Span because there's a lot of people out there doing the work, and uh, they're very much advertising it in the world. And I said, guys, we don't want anybody other than the body of Christ to know what we're doing. I said, Shannon, I said, I have no intentions of ever writing a book about this or doing a movie. I said, now you being a believer and understanding this, if God ever told me to do it, I would do it. But I said, let me say this. I had a movie producer meet with me many years ago, and he was a big Hollywood producer. And he wanted to do a movie about my life. He literally spent 10 hours with me and my wife trying to convince us. And I told him, I said, "Uh," said, you don't don't get it. I said, I'm not the hero. It's Jesus Christ. And he goes, Wes, I'm giving you what everybody dreams of. I said, everybody that's carnal, you know. And guys, I refused to do the movie. Over the years of ministry, I've had many people ask me to write a book. And I actually had a pastor, a Calvary pastor, very well meaning. He said, Wes, it will be the best mission book. Nobody has the stories you write. I said, Brother, I said, I appreciate what you're saying, but I feel like we have the only book that we need right here. This is the hope of the world. As believers, We don't live by the standards of this world. When you go to the mission field, you do not go there to look for recognition, to promote your ministry, your denomination, or your kingdom. You go there for one reason and one reason only, and that's to take the love of Christ to a lost world. Guys, when I went to the mission field, I did not go there to be a soldier. I went there to be a pastor. I'm ordained as a Calvary Chapel pastor. I think I shared with you guys before I thought about being a pastor once, but I realized that you had to like people, and, you know, I felt it was better that I was a foreign missionary, you know. But when you go to the mission field, you go there to reflect not your value system, but Christ's value system to a lost world. We're not there to represent ourselves. And I'm sharing this because I know I shared this last time, but for the benefit of those of you who are new here. What began to happen in our area was rebels begin to come around our area and attack villages. One village, they took 58 children and they crushed their heads against trees. They would come in and rape all the women from nine years old and above. And the ones that they were most beautiful, they would take into sexual slavery. The ones they didn't want, most often they would just shoot them and kill them. But if they didn't shoot them and kill them, they'd cut their noses off of them, their ears, their lips, their fingers, their breast. And God has called us to protect those. And I, so I set the guys down and I said, guys, I want you to understand something here. You know, it is not your job. To save your life, it is your job to save their lives. We're men, they're women and children. If the enemy comes, not one of you guys is to pull off that line until we have evacuated every single woman and child. If you die, then you die. Guys, there's things in life that are worth dying for. When you see little girls that are so afraid, it should be very clear to you what the right thing to do is. I shared the last time I was here that probably the most vivid image in my mind up until recently with this little girl of a child being afraid was we found a mother who'd been killed in a rebel attack, and her two and a half year old daughter was laying on the ground holding onto the body of her dead mother. And I remember picking her up and putting her in my wife, Vicki's lap, and every part of her body is trembling. Her arms, her chest, her stomach, her thighs, her calves. Everything is shaking. See, what this little girl understands that many of us do not is that in southern Sudan and northern Uganda, monsters are real, and they come to kill. And I'm going to tell you right now in Afghanistan, there are many monsters. Guys, I have video that I don't even want to show you, and I won't. It's just too brutal of what they're doing to the people there. What they're doing of taking 10-year-old girls and giving them to... Islamic men to make them their wives. Uh, The only job that a woman, they just outlawed all music in Afghanistan, and the only job that you're allowed to have in Afghanistan now, as a woman, is to clean other women's toilets. That's the only job that they allow them to do. Uh, We were also called and we were told that the first female Supreme Court Justice, uh, the Taliban was hunting her. We got a team in there. We have her in a safe location right now, and she will soon be extracted out of the country too. We're going to show you guys a video right now. Guys, I, I, I showed this three years ago. It's, uh, we've actually lost many more men since then. But for those of you new, we wanted to bring you in so you'll understand this a little bit better. The first part of it is the Syrian church of what the suffering they go through. The second part, you'll see all the chaplains that we have lost in the service of Christ. So let's go ahead and show that real quickly, guys.
1: When the war started, many problems happened, and it's so difficult to continue the ministry. And uh, we know some, someday uh, the problems come inside our homes, not just in our city or in our area. Uh, at that time, I speak to the leaders, and uh, we met together, and I said, as in Acts book, the believers, when they have the persecuted, most of them, they go out of Jerusalem. If you want now to go out of your area or out of Syria to save your families, this is good if God gave you this to do. But uh, we, we must to know maybe one day the problems come to our families and to our life. And maybe we will lost our life one day. You know, when I left the room and after a time, I turned back to see the decision of the leaders. I found 25 people. They stand there and they said, We will not leave. We will continue to serve God here in this area. And we will continue the ministry. If we are die, we will go to Jesus. And if we leave here, we will be with Jesus. And you know, but they asked me something to do. They said, if one of our team die, you know we are non-Christian background and no one will take care about our body if we killed or something happened to us. Uh, what we can do if this happened? For that, we buy this land and we build a graveyard. This graveyard for if anyone killed from our team, we can put him there. This is the first building of our ministry. I think it's first uh, happened in a raqqa city in Syria. They give the chance for the uh, Christian. They said to him, if you leave your Christianity now, you can be, uh, hold your life, or if not, we will kill you. This, this decision is, you, you know, it's must to, to, to take it directly. And most of the uh, Christians said, no, we are ready to die for Jesus. And for that, they, uh, you, you can see many uh, pictures about the Christian. They put them in the cross. And when they put them, many times they put in the uh, area, all the people can see them. To learn the people, if you will be Christian, this is your what will happen to you. Uh, and uh, most of the people, I thank God for these uh, heroes in the faith. They die for Jesus and they put them in the cross. You remember when I told you about the stories about the man who uh, with his son and uh, they bring them and they ask them to leave uh, them faith in Jesus Christ but the father said no and the son said no. And they asked the father, if you don't uh, come to Islam now, we will, we will kill your son front of your, your eyes. And after that, they cut the head of the son and they start to play football in his head, front of his father's eyes. This is something incredible. You cannot understand what's happened. But through all this bad news, you can see the hope is growing between these uh, uh, difficult and uh, bad people. You know, Sometimes many people ask me why, why you continue in the ministry in Syria, especially in this time in the war. The important things for, uh, for our life to be in God willing. This is our call from God to, uh, to do the ministry in Syria. When we are inside the, the God willing, that means we are in the safe place. But if we are go out of God willing and go out of Syria, that means we are in the dangerous place. Maybe I, I can go like to Lebanon, to Jordan, to US, to, to anywhere and continue my life there. But that means I am go out of God willing. That means I am in dangerous. The important things in our life not to be alive but to be with Jesus willing. But if I am inside the dangerous, but in God willing, that means I am in the safe place. This is my belief, and I trust in Jesus. He will keep my life, and when He wants me to go to Him, I am ready to do this. When I go, don't cry for me,
2: and my Father's arms on me. The wounds this world left on my soul, I'll be healed and I'll be whole. Sun and moon will be replaced with the light of Jesus' face. And I will not be ashamed For my Savior knows my name It don't matter this world left on my soul. I'll be healed and I'll be whole. Sun and moon will be replaced with the light of Jesus' face. And I will not be ashamed for my Savior knows my name. It don't matter where you're buried. Face. I'll be home and
1: I'll
0: be free. You know, folks, I was in, uh, I've been in Sudan now for going on twenty six years, but before that I was in Russia. And I go back to Russia usually every year. I didn't for the last two years because of the pandemic. But it's kind of the one place in the world that my brain relaxes. I had prayed for Russia for 13 years before I went there the first time. And I remember that when I was there a couple years ago, one night we were coming back from an outreach, and we're driving through this very, very heavy snowstorm. Uh, You guys have probably all experienced it at some point in your life where the snow is just so heavy, you can barely see 10 feet in front of you, even with the car beam zone. Well, what's getting ready to happen in Afghanistan is that Satan is getting ready to harvest a blizzard of souls. Unless the church responds. I've been blessed by the men that have served with us. One of the guys, I, I'm not going to mention his name, folks. He was with the Elite Seal Team Six. 22 years, then 13 years with the CIA, has a real heart for the Lord. But we sat down and we counted the cost and we realized that some of us may not return. There's a cost in this. But in the South Sudan, I've lost 69 men in the service of the war over there. But all of their lives have counted for the gospel. And we're going to lose a lot more before this is over with. But whenever one of my men dies, we have a ceremony We assemble the chaplains in their uniforms and we take two candles and we hold one up and we light it on one end. And we take the other one and we hold it up and we light it on both ends. And we have a saying in the southern Sudan that a candle that burns twice as bright sometimes only burns half as long. Guys, we're not all supposed to live long lives. God has created certain people for purposes, and one of them is to protect. As a church, we need to care for those that do not have the ability to care for themselves. I can't go to sleep at night without praying for that little girl in Afghanistan. Just the terror I see in her eyes. And I know that God has called us to be here at this time in life. It is not for personal glory or recognition. I don't need any more war stories, guys. i got enough war stories to last me for ten lifetimes. We're not there for any other reason that It's the love of Christ that compels us to reach these people, and it's amazing when you put your arms around a child, or a woman, or even a man, and say, "Don't worry, we're going to protect you." How much it means to them! I want to encourage you that as we race towards eternity, that you make your life count for Jesus Christ. Do not get caught up in the foolish things of this world. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy life or have a good life, folks. But it means that you never lose that perspective that Jesus is first in everything. That we are to love him with such a passion that it utterly drives our life. That we do not identify with this world. The Bible says when it talks about the church that we are a holy people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people of people that does not fit into this world. In closing this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity. and Folks, I share with you, as I did the last time that I'm here, that if you decide to participate, I'm going to ask that you would not take this out of your church tithing. We're not a small organization. We're actually financially bigger than most of the large Calvary chapels. Uh, This year, we will put over $10 million into the field building churches. We have over 1,000 people on our payroll, missionaries, chaplains around the world. We're not here because we need your money. We're here because, like Paul said, not that we might receive, but that you might store your treasures in heaven. But if you do have means, and you can tithe, and you want to give above and beyond. We have these green cards out there, folks, and you have to kind of distinguish the two, because one's brown and one's green. We have all these families coming out of Afghanistan that we got to relocate. We have their testimonies on here. We may have to change your person. We don't know exactly where all of these people are going to land. Well, some of them will be supported, some not. But we can't wait until we have a crisis to respond. But if you'd like to sponsor one of these families that were evacuating out of Afghanistan, it's going to be $75 a month, and we'll have to raise several sponsors for them. You know, folks, we hope one of the places we can get them is Mexico. We built 10 houses in Mexico last year for women that were abandoned by their husbands and it costs us about fifteen dollars to $20,000 to build a pretty decent home down there. So we have to raise enough to be able to take care of these families. But if you'd like to sponsor one, it'll be $75 a month. And in time, you will get updates on them. Then we have our pastors in the underground in the Middle East, in the nine dangerous countries I talked about, under ghost operations. If you'd like to sponsor one of these, they're two different sponsorships. It's also $75 a month you will never get any update on this person unless they're killed. If the Islamic countries find out who these people are, they will be killed. We don't even put them on our websites anymore because al-Qaeda was going to our website, and they were taking our missionaries and putting on what they call a kill site. It's a website that says, they put up a picture that says, kill on site. So we have to be very careful about this. And then there's a program that's very dear to my heart. Um, I was just in Russia Friday, last Friday, and uh, we have a program called Potatoes for Grandmothers. And a lot of the Russian elderly over there, folks, they just cannot afford to eat. Their pensions are $75 a month. During the winter, their electric bill is $75 a month. They literally live off of fried potatoes most of their life, or borscht, which is kind of a cabbage beet and beet soup. Uh, I go to their houses. I open the refrigerator. There will be a half a fish. Nothing but a half a fish in there or nothing in their refrigerators at all. And 100% of what we get for these ladies goes to the ladies. We don't use any of it for administrative fees. We don't keep it for that stuff. It was never meant to be that way. Now, if you would like to do it, it's an automatic debit. It comes out on the third of each month. And, guys, you have to fill out the form. Don't pick them up and walk away with them. I will not know if they're sponsored. You just give us your name, address, phone number, sign in at the bottom. Boy, checks work best for us, but you can use debit and credit cards, too. Now, a lot of people say, well, I didn't bring my financial information. That's not necessary. Pick out what you want, give us your name and address, and we'll call you later. And folks, the only reason I share this is because I get asked every single Sunday, people say, well, what if we want to do all three? Well, we're not asking you to do that, but let's say you tithe and you're able to tithe and God has blessed you and you have means to go above and beyond. If you want to do all three, then it's $200 a month. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on out. In closing this morning... The greatest privilege of my life is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guys, there is a richness when you walk with him. A lot of people never quite grasp that. But I want to share with you that literally obedience is the safety net for the believer. And if you will just trust the Lord and say, Here, my Lord, what do you want in my life? God will never call most of you to ever go to a place like southern Sudan or Afghanistan. And unless you're called, you should never go. It was interesting because all the SEALs told me, they said, that mountain was the worst climb of their entire career. They'd never been on a mountain that was so difficult. I know that when I got off, our feet were bloody. All of our toenails were black from the blood under them. I lost one toenail. One of the brothers lost three. But I kept thinking when I was looking at these bloody feet, how the Bible says how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. And I thought, Lord, is this what you were talking about? Was this what you were thinking about at that time? Did you see this beforehand? And this was the very image that you had in your mind. I pray that in this next year, your feet will be the ones that bring good news. God bless you.